Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie. How are we this week? We're good this week, aren't we? We are good. We've had a busy week, but it's been a... Exciting, fun, exhausting... (laughs) Time. Yeah, it has. So for anyone that hasn't been following us on social media, where the hell have you been? We went to Sydney and hosted a baby love event, which was super exciting for us because it was our first big real hosting gig and we pulled it off. We smashed it. Smashed it out of the park. (laughs) It's so funny because I get a bit eye rolly when people talk about imposter syndrome. Like I'm a bit like, oh, no, just have faith in yourself. You're great at what you do. I have it so badly at the moment and still to this day when we get asked to like do anything, I'm like, why do you want little old us? But it was so fun and I'm super proud of us and it was fun. We were in Sydney for two nights, so we got two kid-free days. Jade wore white the whole time because she was away from her children even though she was on it, period. (laughs) (laughs) Very impressed and proud of myself. And, yeah, we had an epic time we swapped over when we got home and found out mid-flight that our partners are actually going away to Melbourne to watch the same fight and have a little boy's time away. So we've had two nights of work and girl time. Now they're having two nights of boy time and good on them. Oh, yeah, I'd rather they didn't go and I didn't have to sell my parent, but, yeah, whatever. (laughs) We're going to get straight into today's episode today and not ramble on too much because it's a longer episode this week. It's with Dr. Golly and it's all about unsettled babies, what to do, what it may mean, what, you know, what should you deal with versus what should you seek help with. This is an episode that so many of you have been asking for for a really long time. We finally got to meet Dr. Golly in the flesh room we're in Sydney, so we hope you love this as much as us. As always, if whatever you're doing is working for you, then you keep doing that. But if you are looking for help, then this is the episode for you. Enjoy. Hello, Dr. Golly. This is weird. You're not meant to say That's start. all I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Dr. Golly. Thank you so much for joining us back on the podcast. I feel like we didn't do our listeners a solid. Last time we chatted to you, we talked all about what to expect with a newborn. And we said in it, oh, maybe we could do a whole episode on unsettled babies. And then we went silent for about a year. So those babies are probably not even babies anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here as promised to chat with you all about unsettled babies. If people haven't listened to your first episode with us, would you like to tell them who you are and what you do? So thank you very much and thank you for having me back. So I'm Dr. Golly. I am a paediatrician down in Melbourne and I work predominantly with unsettled babies, trying to get them happy, trying to get them sleeping, trying to get the whole family sleeping through the night. But not just babies, it's toddlers as well. And we know uh, through a lot of research that poor sleep often starts in the newborn phase and many people just kind of get used to it and think that that's the norm and 
oh, my five-year-old's not a good sleeper. They never have been. But you can turn that around at any age. Now, this is a stat that Dr. Timmy is not happy with, but your episode with us last time is actually our most listened to mm. episode ever. <laughs> Rivalry. Which Timmy was just, oh. human, you know, not happy about. I did a, I did a Caesar with Timmy last week and, and I, I must be honest, I did remind him of that. <laughs> Mid-Caesar. <laughs> he ended up getting another paediatrician in. You've been you've been blacklisted. Now to get started, what is an unsettled baby? Like how do we know if we have an unsettled baby or it's actually just what is to be expected of a baby? That's a brilliant question and it's something that very few people ask. It's a great place to start because crying is normal. Crying is normal in the newborn period. It's a baby's form of communication. And the challenge is finding the difference between normal amount of crying and excessive crying. So there is actually a definition of crying or excessive crying, which we also call colic. Colic comes from a Latin word that means turn on, turn off. So it's like that baby that cries and then rests and then cries again. And it looks almost like you're sort of turning up the pain, turning down the pain, turning up. I wish babies had a colic button then if it means turn on, turn off. Imagine if we could just go, (laughs) you know what, I've just had enough of you for the next half up. Boop. baby born. (laughs) Switch it off at the back. the volume knob on the top. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So basically uh, Wessel's rule of three is how we define colic or excessive crying. And it's basically crying for more than three hours a day, for more than three days a week, for more than three weeks in a row. Now, that's a definition, but I don't actually find it particularly helpful. So for me, an unsettled baby is a baby who is who looks and acts unsettled. So, for example, I've had patients in this room who've said to me in response to my question, no, my, my baby's not unsettled at all. They're really good. They're fantastic. They barely ever cry. And my follow-up question is, okay, well, how often are you feeding? And the answer was, well, every two hours. Mm. So that particular baby at their age and their weight could have been feeding every four hours. So if you only fed that baby every four hours, they'd be crying an enormous amount. So unsettledness is very much in the eye of the beholder, but the way I look at it and the way that I want um people to assess their own situation is to say, well, let's take, for example, a baby who's six weeks old, who's more than five kilograms, who is healthy. That baby can, and I'm not going to say should, but I'm going to say that that baby can feed every four hours during the day and then sleep for a good seven hours straight overnight. That's what a baby's capable of. And if your baby is not doing that or is crying excessively while you try to implement that, then your baby's unsettled, then you need to look for the reason. And I'm like, gosh, the list will be absolutely massive as to what the reason is, but like obviously habits come into it when we think, oh, they want to be picked up and breastfed or they just need to be there hungry or they need their nappy changed or even my toddler at the moment, she's thirsty. I'm like, are you really thirsty? Like, are you, or is this just a habit that we're just doing now because you want to wake up and wake me up? And you know what? I've been there with with my first, who I describe as the world's most unsettled baby. And that's part of the reason why I got into this particular area. But 
that's a story for another time. The point is, is that you you just feel like you're barely treading water in that moment and you're trying this and you're trying that and what worked for you, what worked for me, and then you've got other people giving their opinions and, you know, you try something because you're so desperate and you literally try it for two days and then you jump to the next thing and you never know what it is. And you're right, it, it is a bit, bit of habit. And it's a, it's a lot of, sometimes it's a lot of little things that come together. But the way that I try to conceptualize and break down the unsettled baby is in two parts. It's the kind of thing where I feel like I could talk to you both for 10 days straight and still only scratch the surface. So I've, I've thought long and hard, how do I break this down and, and describe it in a way that is as clear as possible so that when you are in that deep deep hole you're not given like here read this 250 page book and you'll be able <laughs> read to this thesis i did <laughs> on the unsettled baby so essentially i break it down into two parts the first is exclude any potential cause for them to be unsettled mm. now that's a huge area to explore but it's absolutely able to be done and with every single baby, it's different. And then the second part is once you have excluded those things and you can say, okay, now my baby's healthy, my baby's got no wind and we've cured their eczema or whatever it may be, then you can start to implement a routine and then you start to use settling techniques and then any bad habits get broken. And those bad habits, those are actually sometimes the easiest things to fix because that you can fix in 24 hours. So, but if you're saying like a six-week-old has the capability to sleep for six to seven hours, like I have had two children so far, neither of them at six weeks were sleeping six to seven hours, but that to me was fine and I didn't like really see them as an unsettled baby, like I was just feeding every three or four hours. Like if we don't feel like there's another issue, then it's fine to just do that, right? Absolutely, 200% right. Yeah. So if you are happy with what you're doing, then you you found the solution. I love it. And I like I love that you asked that question because I never ever want to come across as putting pressure on parents. Like that is literally the absolute antithesis to my entire point. I want to take the pressure away and I want to drop the anxiety down. And someone once said to me, exactly what you described my baby sleeps five hours and i co-sleep and i breastfeed every now and then during the night and it's a bit ad hoc but i'm really really happy and i just thought this is perfection like you being happy is absolutely everything that i want i'm not here to tell you how long your baby should sleep i'm here to tell you what your baby's capable of Mm. you then decide what you want and if what you want is not what you're achieving then I'm going to help you get it. And I think that can be the issue with parenting nowadays is there's so much information out there, which I think is great because when you're at a wit's end, you can get the information you're looking for. But I think that sometimes people think that if you're putting information out there, it's meant for everyone and you're putting pressure on everyone to do that thing. You know, like people, you know, we've both said we sleep trained our children and- we, you know, that was because before I had kids, did I think I'd sleep train? Absolutely not. But I got to a wit's end where I was like, I need this help. And then it's like, but if people 
co-sleep, often they can be like, oh, well, you're damaging your baby if you sleep train. And then people who are into sleep training are like, oh, well, if you co-sleep, you're damaging your baby. And it's like, just do what works for you. And if you get to a point where what you're doing isn't helping, then there's information out there to help you. And there's also such a spectrum in between. I think it's often presented as though, you know, you're going to do attachment type parenting, or you're going to do like complete cry it out parenting. And really the reality is that a lot of us are just in between somewhere doing what we're trying to do to make it work for us. Absolutely right. And I find that with your baby, it's almost like you're working together to find a solution. Like I can't just say that I'm going to make this decision that, you know, you're going to sleep for six hours. There are going to be cues and signs of that child wanting certain things. Like two of my children, two out of three, did not want to co-sleep. They didn't want to be breastfed and they were not comfortable, nor was I, with sleeping next to each other. They felt much better when I actually popped them down in their own space and they slept better and I slept better. Then another child was completely different would absolutely want to be with me. And I sort of went through those motions of, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's what everyone making tells you to do. Back. I'm making yeah. a rod. You know, grandma's going to tell me that that's just silly. And then I just thought, this is the last child and it shouldn't be your last child that you surrender. It should be any child at any time to make you both happy. And if it is making you happy, then it doesn't matter what anyone else says. You both make absolutely brilliant points both of you because every single baby is different and like you said you've got some babies that want that close attachment that need that and then you've got some babies that don't and it's the same you you can see it in the children as they grow older Mm. I've had the same thing that you described my eldest didn't particularly want that closeness and now you try and hug her she's not particularly keen on it whereas our second just wants to be hugged all the time and it's temperament it's like you and I we all have different needs and that kind of stuff is built in so you need to respond exactly as you said you need to respond to the baby the other thing that you said Sophie is that things change over time so you at, at six weeks if you for example are on maternity leave you've got great support and you are coping absolutely fine you don't need to sleep train that baby you don't need to get them into routine if you're happy and then if you know that in one month's time I'm going back to work or dad's going back to work or whatever it may be then you think you know what something may need now. a change yeah, yeah. now I'm now I'm going to have a change so it's it's that flexibility and what we're talking about is a huge spectrum of what is okay so you've got different babies you've got it's my second it's my third it's my first You've got, uh, I've got lots of support. I've got no support. I'm working. I'm not so many different options, right? And ultimately, nobody can tell you what you need to do other than you. Hmm. That's the bottom line. Unfortunately, sometimes. (laughs) Well, yeah, people are not going to hold back in telling you what they think. But ultimately, it's what works for you. It's what works for you in terms of your comfort, in terms of alignment between parents, it what it's what works for you in terms of how you feel. And so ultimately, my approach is not to tell you what you need to do, not to tell you this is what your baby has to be doing and you're crazy if you don't do that. And I will never say to a parent, if you choose this particular method, you're screwing your child for life. You know, I just I hate it when people have those huge, they speak in hyperbole, 
they scare people, they make mm. people anxious. You just feel, you know, you play into that parental guilt and you fuel it and you make people think that, oh, my God, if you do this, you're going to kill your kids. And if you don't do that, oh, my God, you're crazy. I hate that. So what I want to do and the, the whole philosophy, if you will, for my program is about giving you the confidence, giving you the tools to say, this is what I want. Now I've got the tools and knowledge to be able to implement it to get what I want. And yeah. it gives you that strength to turn around when yet another person gives you their unsolicited Auntie advice Sue. and you can just sort of smile and walk away and mutter something under your breath. Absolutely. And Jade and I were laughing because we opened up the, you know, we put up a question sticker, what would you like to know about unsettled babies? And we laughed, not in a way, ha-ha, to anyone, but uh, almost laughing with you because we've both been there and it was like, Five-day-old, help. Six-week-old, help. Two-month-old, help. Seven months, four years, 18 months. And so we just want to say you're not alone. We're going to make it as general as possible so it can apply to as many people as possible because we hear you. You want our help. (laughs) And I also want to say I'll never forget this time when I was in a supermarket with Yumi, third child, in a carrier. I was doing what I can, just quickly getting things off shelves. An absolute Karen just came straight up to me and she, one, touched the baby on the head and was like, oh, her neck is not supported. Her neck is not supported. You need to, like, carry her a different way. And I was holding bread, dog food, the baby, and I looked at her and I went, thank you, but I do not need your advice. And I literally just walked off and I just couldn't believe, even though I'm so used to people putting in their two cents and older generations saying, this is what we did. And look, I know that they're only trying to help, but what that can, <laughs> no, but what that can do also, if I was in a vulnerable situation that day, like say I didn't sleep or my baby was unsettled. And this was the first time that that child actually slept I could have burst into tears you because you've told me. No, the, the dog food would have been hit hard in aisle five. But, you know, like that is what I guess I'm trying to say to people that are always giving advice that if you're not being asked, maybe the best thing is to just walk on by or just listen. Absolutely. And you know what, Jade, if it was your first or if someone oh. received that comment who isn't as strong as you, it can. It can completely break you. And even if it doesn't break you in that moment, it breaks your confidence internally. Yeah. And then you start to second guess. And I'll tell you one thing that is absolute fact is that if you don't feel confident, if you feel anxious, and then you try and hold a baby, that baby mm. feels it and that baby senses it and that baby drinks in. I have this, this rule, babies drink much more than milk. So mm. if you are anxious and worried and scared and doubting yourself, and people like that just quash your confidence. Your baby will feel it. If you think about the way that we cradle a baby, we hold them in our arms and they rest their head right up, up against our bicep. Now, a relaxed bicep feels very different from a tense one. <laughs> you can imagine someone holding a baby like this with their shoulders up, they're tense, they're worried. That baby can't relax. It's like you trying to comfort someone when you yourself are in the middle of a panic attack. Yeah, It just doesn't work. So, and so you're 100% right. We almost can't stop these people who think that they're helping from giving their two cents. And so what we need to do is we need to turn up 
the volume on our innate parental instinct, that mother's instinct, that father's instinct. We need to empower that parent to have the strength that you had in that, that moment. But on their first baby, mm. turn around and say, thank you, but bugger off. Yeah, it's so true. I remember how frustrated I would get. I would, you know, with Poppy, my first, I would be, you know, it, it would be five-ish. Nick would be on his way home from work. I would have been ro- trying to rock her for a solid 45 minutes, but I would have been as tense as a brick wall, you know, and exactly. you're doing that shallow breathing. You've got <laughs> gritted teeth. You're probably whispering under your breath, go the fuck to sleep you're getting a bit tense and then literally nick would walk through the door hold her for like two minutes and she'd be sound asleep in his arms and i'd just be like but it's because he comes in he's calm he's probably been listening to nice music in the car he's not swearing at her he's you know like and 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 it is and and sometimes he would just even come home and put calm music like you know turn the tv off and put calm music on or whatever and the difference was mind-blowing you're exactly right so That's one of the reasons why I love to get partners involved as much as possible, as long as it doesn't make, in your situation, it doesn't make you feel like you're doing an even worse job thinking, Mm. oh my God, why can he settle my child, but I can't. And it's so important that we understand that it's because that partner has come home without the weight of the entire day on their shoulders and without the stress and the lack of sleep, et cetera, like you said, you know, it's a completely different mood. So take from that, that it's not that your husband had any particular skills or anything. It's because he approached it with a completely different mindset, which he could only have because he didn't have hours. Totally. He pissed whenever he wanted to that day and ate lunch. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah, totally. And this is what I feel like, you know, when you people talk about unsettling babies and putting them to sleep and not knowing how long they should leave them for and the crying out method and all those different methods. It's so overwhelming. But I was just saying to Sophie before we came on here, like if you had your mentality changed to the fact that I'm actually going to pop my baby down and in this five minutes while they like self-settle or cry for five minutes, it's actually, it feels like a lifetime, but it's not that long. You went and did something for you, like made yourself a cup of coffee or did something that made you feel good. You're walking back into that room with a completely different energy and that child picks up on that energy because you've had a little bit of time to like stop reset, recharge, and I don't know, it just it changes. It's a game changer. The very, very last post, no word of a lie, that I just put up on Instagram talks to exactly that point. It says you cannot pour from an empty cup. So people think that you have to focus on the baby, but it's actually not the right place to put your focus. You have to put the focus on the person who is the majority carer of that child. So in your scenario, both of you, if you were the one who was the the stay-at-home mum for that period, you've got to pour your energy into the mum. So I'm a paediatrician, but I actually treat mums. I treat dads. (laughs) And that's how I know that the baby will be well looked after. That's incredible. So we'll go back to a bit like, you know, about some definitions because a lot of people wrote in saying like, what is colic? What is reflux? How do I know, you know, when to be worried? Are you able to give us a bit of background on those? Absolutely. So the first thing to do is to think about an age appropriate routine. Think about how old your baby is, making sure that you're ticking certain boxes in terms of 
medical reasons. So you can't try to settle or sleep train a baby that's not getting enough calories. You can't try to do that to a baby who's got uncontrolled eczema. So there are certain things you need to rule out first. And some of those may be very obvious, like the baby with eczema. What's not obvious is how bloody uncomfortable eczema is. It's Mm. so itchy and babies can't scratch the way that we can scratch and you can't escape it. So eczema is something I talk about a lot because people underestimate just how much it contributes to unsettled behaviour. In terms of things that contribute to unsettledness, the, the number one, two and three in terms of reasons, especially in the first three to four months, is going to be wind. It's going to be the baby that is not burped enough because either they're very difficult to burp or the parents don't realise how much that baby necessarily needs burp. So there are so many reasons, and we literally could talk for days about this, but the key is to recognise the signs in your baby. And when you teach a parent to be able to interpret their baby's signs, all of a sudden the parent knows without any doubt what their baby needs at any one time. They can interpret a hunger cue from a tired sign, from a wind cue, from trying to itch from eczema, for example. And the more you educate and empower the parent, the more you know as a parent, the more you're able to turn around and say, hold on, I recognise that. And I know that it's been two hours since your last feed. I know that you're not hungry because I know that feed at midday was really good. You know, if you're talking about a breastfed baby, that mum will be able to say, I felt the transfer, I felt the fill of milk, I felt the empty, I know that milk had to have gone somewhere, so I know my baby's well fed. They're crying after two hours and, you know, they're two months old. They normally go four hours. I'm actually not going to feed this baby. I'm going to look for another potential cause. And it's just that ability to think critically, the ability to look at the baby, to interpret what they're trying to tell us. And all of a sudden, what you're doing is you're truly communicating with that baby. And people always say, well, babies can't communicate, so they cry. I absolutely disagree with that sentiment. I think that babies are phenomenal communicators and the people who need to work on their communication are the adults. (laughs) I think babies are like animals. You know, they can smell it. They can sense fear or fun or worry or anxiety. So the baby can actually communicate really well. It's us who second guess and doubt and and we sort of almost screw up communication with sarcasm and nuance and, and, you know, nonverbal communication. All this, we just make it very confusing. Babies are very, very clear. They will say, I'm hungry, I'm tired. They're a bit over the top, but they're clear. <laughs> have you have you watched that documentary on, I think it's Netflix, it's about babies, and they study them and show you that they can focus on certain blocks that like if they have the same puppet doing the same thing, they get bored and and it's around this four-month or six-month of age, and then they choose two different puppets. They actually focus longer because they're trying to understand why they're different. It is honestly such an incredible thing and it is. it brings you back to understanding they aren't dumb. They're really, really smart. They're really smart. That's why we use breastfeeding necklaces. So you're both wearing beautiful necklaces and that's exactly what I would prescribe to the mum who comes to me and says, my five-month-old won't feed for more than three minutes and I don't know what to do. And the answer is because they're bored. 
(laughs) but they've been staring up your nostrils for five months for hours and hours a day they're bored and they want to be stimulated so babies Ah. are so much smarter than we give them credit for that's so interesting because I used to always take them off because I was like, oh, my God, all they do is grab at them the whole time. But really they're just trying to have a bit of fun because my boogers are exactly. boring. Exactly. <laughs> oh, there you right. go. <laughs> now, I remember last time in the episode you were saying that you think maybe reflux gets thrown around a little mm. too commonly and that reflux is actually quite an unwell baby who's vomiting blood. Is that right? Like yeah, it's, it's, it's it's quite a different kettle of fish. Yes. There is reflux and then there is reflux disease. They're two very different entities. So one is G-O-R or gastroesophageal reflux. In America, they don't use an O, they use an E, so it's G-E-R. So you may see it written that way. Mm. So that is just reflux or movement of milk backwards from the stomach up the esophagus and out of the mouth. It's not a vomit. Or a spit up. So a, a spit up, a posset, these are effortless. They happen, the baby barely even notices, and you often just pick your baby up at the end of a sleep and there's a little puddle next to their head because they must have had a little spit up. Now, spit ups and possets, those are absolutely normal and they're normal to happen. And for me, if you bring me a baby who possets a lot, I will say brilliant because that means I know they birth easily. Yeah. And again, coming back to it, the most common cause of colic is wind. Please play that 10 times in a row. It's the most (laughs) important thing that people understand. So when it comes to reflux disease, that is excessive reflux. That is a huge amount of refluxed milk to the point where that baby is actually calorie negative in balance. They're not gaining enough weight. So those babies are really underweight. They're dropping centiles. They're dropping weight. And because of the constant movement of acidic stomach contents, it often causes significant damage to the feeding tube, to the esophagus, and those babies can actually bleed. So the reflux to milk can actually be blood. So when people come to me and say, my baby's unsettled, I think they've got reflux, and then I look in their arms and see a big chubby baby, well, that baby does not have reflux. and It's become reflux, unfortunately, in our society has almost become a synonym for colic. And people are, so many people, even some pediatricians, some doctors, so many people just describe this period of unsettledness as if it is some sort of rite of passage you just need to get through, you know, stupid comments about light at the end of the tunnel, just keep pushing, keep pushing, there's an end to it. I despise it because no one is looking for a reason. No one's looking at why that baby is unsettled. And so they're just merely giving it an adjective. They're just saying your baby's got colic or your baby's got reflux or your baby's doing purple crying or your baby's going through a developmental leap. (laughs) It's all nonsense. (laughs) I haven't heard that one. No, I say it all the time. So if it's not, you know, the serious case of losing weight, vomiting blood, that sounds like me when I was pregnant, actually, not the losing weight part, but the vomiting so much I was vomiting blood. But if it's not, you know, that severe end of things, because obviously if your baby is vomiting blood, don't just listen to this podcast, go and see someone. Do things like colic drops or probiotics or anything like that help with a colicky or unsettled baby? There is always a place 
for those things. Some of them are helpful, some of them are not. We have studied probiotics for the last decade, trying to find whether or not they're helpful. There was only one study that I'm aware of, which was actually done by a colleague of mine at the Children's Hospital that found a very small benefit in reducing a little bit of crying in babies who are exclusively breastfed in the first few weeks of life. So what the final consensus is on probiotics is that they're just not what we hoped they would be. So I don't believe that they do wonders. And when it comes to colic mixes, gripe water, semethicoma, bentol, you name it, I mean, there's so many out there. Infocolic and spring, there are so many available. I think that if you are using them as almost like a Hail Mary, then they're just simply not going to work. The key is trying to find the reason for their unsettledness and addressing the reason. If those colic mixes are part of the solution to fixing the particular problem, for example, a colic mix that helps with winding, or if you're formula feeding a baby, maybe it might be a formula that is specially um, designed to remove cow milk protein or something like that. If you're addressing the issue at hand, then absolutely, Mm. yes, that is helpful. And sometimes that's completely necessary. So again, you have to begin with a medical hat on where you say, is there something wrong here? Is there a cow milk protein intolerance? Is there reflux disease? Is there uncontrolled eczema? Whatever it may be. And once you have excluded something serious, something that is medical that needs to be addressed, then we can say, okay, why is this baby feeding so often? Why is this baby unsettled? Why does this baby look uncomfortable day in, day out? Can we find the reason? And then what is the solution to get them happy, settled, sleeping and improve the physical and mental health of everyone in the family? And now you've said reason one, two and three is generally wind, you know, once we've ruled out those other things. Why last time when you harped on about burping, was that seen as controversial? Again, a lot of people don't fully appreciate the importance of winding. And so I, just on Friday last week, I had a phone call from a mum who came to see me and she had this eight-week-old baby that was terribly unsettled and she'd actually heard the original podcast with you, came to see me and It was within a day or a day and a half that baby was completely different and she called me crying, talking about how wonderful the change has been. And the change that we made was, you know, I did a medical assessment, we ironed out a few little small things, but the major thing with this particular baby was that it wasn't being burped enough. And and just so you you can almost paint the picture, this baby was feeding every two hours Mm. during the day and four hours at most overnight at two months of age. The baby was breastfed and the baby was otherwise pretty healthy and there were no major issues. That mum was getting a burp after each breast and thought that that was adequate because she said, yep, my baby burps. And the baby was feeding exactly twice as often as I wanted, as that baby needed to. And so we worked on an active winding technique we thought this mum had to do it. We talked about having her partner involved. It was two mums. And everything completely changed for that family. Now, if you 
just talk about that particular example and you think about how life-changing that was for her it just it, it absolutely made my day it sort of makes all the bad days and the sleepless nights mm. on call it makes it all worth it because you can you make such a, a wonderful positive difference there are people out there who just don't believe that that's possible there are people out there who um think no 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 burping's not important because you know the midwife at, at hospital told me you don't need to burp a baby and there's just there's a lot of noise there's a lot of opinions there's a lot of talking and people will hear what i have to say and will say no no that's absurd you, you've got to feed the baby every two hours there's nothing wrong with what she was doing and you know what you're right there was nothing wrong with what that mum was doing when she came to see me feeding every two hours during the day feeding four hours overnight there's absolutely nothing wrong with that if you are happy mm. she wasn't she was so overtired she was so broken she was well past breaking point and she wanted more sleep and she recognized that her baby was uncomfortable so we achieved that and so why is there so much noise in this space because people care people are passionate about it when you say you know there was so much controversy I, i'm not upset by that i want people talking about this i want there to be noise i want people having these conversations i want people to know that people care about it and people are emotionally invested in it what i don't want is for people to come out and start attacking and being negative and say what you're doing is wrong or the advice you're giving is wrong because that's exactly what we don't need we need more empowerment and we need more positivity and we need more warm hugs as opposed to aggressive attacks you know i get it it's an emotional space and a lot of people have a lot of opinions i completely understand and the message i want your listeners to sort of take home from this is that you've got no idea mums specifically you have no idea how brilliant you are like you don't look at that baby cry. and think to yourself i made two eyeballs i made a nose with two nostrils when last did you look at your child and count their fingers and think i did that i made that so if you're doubting yourself about how good a mother you are or you're not doing this right or you're taking on all of this noise and having anxiety and worry when last did you look at that child and think i did that I made that literally from scratch. And if you're breastfeeding, you're nourishing that. And if you're formula feeding, you're nourishing that. You're growing a human. That is insane. It is incredible. So I absolutely do not tolerate and I don't care for anyone who's out there to make you feel bad. They can piss off. You're brilliant. <laughs> the fact that you've made a human, you're incredible. That's the end. Sometimes of it. I wish that the baby would act a little bit more grateful. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. The they can say thanks later. later. Yeah. But, well, does it? Um, but, <laughs> still waiting. Yeah, I'm still waiting. But I had Billy, and I've spoken about this before, and just what you were saying really resonated because I had a first child, then I had a second one, and assumed 
as we do, that she would be very similar to the first child and she wouldn't settle. She was a really grumpy baby. She wouldn't want to be put down. She would scream all the time. And I was at my absolute tether with her. Like I just didn't know what to do or what I was doing wrong. And what I started to do was I go through the approach of she's hungry, I'm changing her nappy or she needs to be burped. And I just kept on going around. So every two hours or even every one hour, I'd hear that burp and then I'd put her down and she'd cry. So I'd go, well, she needs to be fed again. So all that was happening with her was she was being fed and then fed again and then fed again. She had no time to actually have you know, like big enough burp. The only time she was okay is if I actually walked her upright in a carrier and she was upright so she could bring that up over a period of time and then when I put her down, she was okay. But this was a really long time and an exhausting period when you've got another child that's, you know, 16 months apart and you just don't know what you can do to help the baby that doesn't stop crying. If you are burping and you just don't feel like it's working, do you have any tips for better active burping? Yeah, I mean, there's an an unbelievable focus on wind in the program that I have on not just recognising what the wind signs are, it's understanding what wind does. So for me, it's it's like that adage about teaching a man to fish. I don't just want to give someone a fish. I want them to understand how to go and do it themselves. So I want parents out there to know, for example, that a baby who's hiccuping a lot or a baby who's grunting a lot is a baby who's not burped enough. So it's important to understand exactly what the signs are that my baby is not burping enough before you even think about how I'm going to get it out. It's also important to know that some babies are two burp babies and others are 10 burp babies. And it's important to know that some babies who bring up a little bit of milk actually bring up air with it. So that counts as a burp. And it may not be that you need to necessarily get four burps out. It might be that you need to look for the signs that your baby no longer has Mm. wind inside them. But for me, it's all about recognizing what those signs are and like I said before empowering that parent so you know exactly how many burps your baby needs how to get them out and there are multiple methods that I go through to show you exactly how to get that burp out and it sounds Jade like in your example that you had your three leveled approach was perfect it was just the wrong way around yep and you needed to start with the winding and then thinking about nappy change and very much a last resort was feeding and that's what I see very, very often. And we introduced the dummy in the end because we, I wanted her to feel okay with, like, because she was upset and unsettled. So we introduced that as a, as a pacifier. But as long, I worked out in the end, as long as she was upright for a certain amount of time, like Mia, literally two burps spit up and she was fine but this child she needed to be upright and she needed to be in a certain area to get that gas up and out for her to be content and have a decent sleep and she couldn't just feed and be put down to bed I knew in the end 
it would take me an hour. I just knew that I would have to sit her over here or do what I can. And I wish I had tools and different tricks. I didn't know that there was more methods to burping and and relieving gas than just tapping them on the back or pressing on their tummy. Like this is what we, I think we missed out on. And I'm so glad that you have provided a program where people can understand that there are so many other avenues that we can actually take to make a simple change. Exactly right. And what I find a lot of people do or the scenario they find themselves in is that they're ultimately finished with feeding, changing everything that they do. And they're trying now to get their baby down for a sleep at the exact moment when that baby's overtired. And so that becomes an almost impossible task. And then people end up just, like you said, walking around or doing a an assisted nap or something like that. So the second part to unsettle babies is once you have managed the cause or removed the cause for their unsettledness and they're well-fed and they've got a clean nappy and you're ready to go to put them down, you want to try to recognise also the tired signs so that you're trying to get them down at the moment when they are tired before they reach overtired, which sometimes can literally be as quick as 10 minutes. Mm. And then you employ settling techniques. And the more parents understand what the settling techniques are and why they work, the better you'll get at them. And the best way to approach it from a mindset point of view is thinking about when that baby last felt comfortable. Now, not many people know this, but the most comfortable we've ever been in our lives, the least anxious we've ever been in our lives is when we were in the womb. That was a long time ago. (laughs) A very long time ago. And if you put me back, I've been uncomfortable for 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a time when we had no mortgage to pay and we had no kids hanging off us and we had no exams and we had no study. We just, there were no pressures at all. We were in this temperature controlled bath. We had food on tap. There was no concerns in the world. Exactly. And so, Everything that we do to calm a baby, in fact, everything we do to calm an adult, to calm a friend, has its origins in the womb. I mean, if you think about it, Dave, let's say you were having a bad day and you just broke and Sophie came up to try and calm you down. No, that doesn't happen, does it? No, no. She's (laughs) laughing because it does. (laughs) Continue. So if you think about how you go to your friend as an adult to calm them and settle them, what do you do? You give them a hug, you pat them on the back or you rub their back and in their ear you say, shh. So what are the three things that you've just done? You've made white noise, which is what you hear when you're underwater, which is what a baby hears during the entire pregnancy. You have patted your friend on the back, which reminds them of their mother's heartbeat, which is what you hear for nine months of pregnancy. And you've given them a hug which makes them feel cocooned and enveloped and tightly bound, which is what you are when you are in the womb. So what you're doing to your friend in their 30s, 40s, 70s, 80s, is you are returning them to the feeling of being in the womb and that is why it works as a settling technique at any age. Can you do it to me That's now? That's so cute. You want to pop up in my womb? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Can I>? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, everything we do for a baby. Okay, let's break it down. When you're ready to put your baby to sleep or if your baby's unsettled, the first thing you do, once you have taken care of all of the necessities like food and warmth and clean nappy, 
we wrap them in a swaddle. And all too often I see that parents who are not swaddling tight enough. You've got to really swaddle really tight. Remember, swaddle the arms, leave the legs to protect the hips. And we swaddle them really, really tight to remind them of that feeling of being hugged and being in the womb in a tight container with very, very little room to move. Once you've done that, you then provide a source of white noise that can either be with a white noise machine. It can even just be a TV or radio on in another room down the corridor. People who try to have a house that is dead silent, oh. is a, it's a very big mistake. So you can make shushing sounds next to that, that baby's ear or use a, a different source of white noise. And then what you want to do is you want to move because that baby's used to movement. That mum going for walks or going to gym or rolling around in, you know, in bed during sleep, the babies are not still the entire pregnancy. So that's why we walk around with babies or we give a little bounce as we're holding, holding them. And the next thing we do is that we pat them. I see people using patting as a winding technique, and I cannot be more clear on this. It doesn't bring wind up. It does not help to bring burps up. So the only patting that you should do on a baby is one that reminds them of their mother's heartbeat in the womb. So that is a very gentle tap. And if you, if you can think of your hand resting on their back, it actually only needs to be one finger. It doesn't even need to be the whole hand. And you want to do it gently and you want to do it slowly because if you are patting away, <laughs> what is that? That's an anxious person's heartbeat. Yeah, seriously. What you want is you want that 60 beats a minute, nice and slow, roughly one a second beat of someone who's calm. Think about it. If you aren't calm, you can't calm someone else. So you want to remind them that they are back in the womb, they've got their warmth, they've got their swaddle, they've got their underwater noise, and they've got their mother's heartbeat up against their spine, and it's like an instant sedative. Isn't it incredible because we went out to dinner last night after an event and my sister-in-law had my niece who's almost four months old and I said, let me have her because she was unsettled and she needed to eat dinner and I said, I'll take her. And like it's just instilled. Obviously I've had kids but it's instilled where you grab a baby, you hold them close. I had a napkin like <laughs> over her shoulder, which they were laughing about that looked wrong. But over I wanted Over my shoulder. I just didn't want her to have have all the lights in her eyes and once again womb related because there's not a lot of stuff going on there and then shushing right in her ear quietly moving and tapping I was tapping the back like and it, all of that calms them down but you have to be you have to be in a calm state like if it was my baby and I was having my dinner I would be like oh god I know I need to put her down but I just I you know I can't so for someone else to just do that and they were calm and in that that moment makes such a difference and all those tiny elements all together is just oh could you just imagine like I don't know, your partner just doing all of that to you at night, how peaceful it would be. It'd be a bit awkward like if you were held like that, but imagine how lovely it would feel. So, so beautiful. Mm. We're going to hold each other after this recording just here on the couch. (laughs) We are. (laughs) Just to see how it feels. And that ties into what we were talking about before, Jade. It's in you already. Yeah. The instinct is there. That's not because, I mean, you've got more confidence because you've had your own children, but that knowledge to warmly hold, hug, move, 
cat, shush, it's actually built in because subconsciously you know that that works for you and that's what you employ to settle someone else. So it, it's all inside that that instinct is there. We just push it down and we doubt it with so much noise and worry, but it's all it's within us all. And is there similar tips for, you know, quite a lot of people wrote in, you know, like what the hell, why does witching hour have to exist? Why is it called witching hour? Because it never lasts just an hour. Or, you know, (laughs) if my baby wakes up in the middle of the night, you know, when they get in that state that they're just inconsolable and you try and give them the boob or a bottle, but they're in that real like gulpy stage where they just seem like they're crying so hard that even to drink seems to cause them pain. Do you just go back to those same fundamental things of back to the womb, back to the womb? You do, and there are two parts to witching hour. Number one is trying to prevent it, which I'll talk about Mm. in a moment, but number two is what you do when you're in the middle of it. And the answer is you're right. You just employ those techniques. You you try to defer to the the parent or, you know, grandparent or helper or someone who is as calm as possible because they're going to be more successful. And you do. Sometimes you might need to have an assisted nap. It's all well and good to say babies should be able to be fed, burp, changed and put down. You walk out and (laughs) they just go straight to sleep. But there are times when it doesn't happen, no matter how good your skills are or how experienced you are. And those assisted naps where they just fall asleep in your arms or in the stroller or in the car, that's just a part of life. You know, don't fight against it. The problem is when you have to do that every single time, then it's a there's something we need to address. But the odd assisted nap is not a problem. Yeah. And so what are ways that we can prevent that witching hour? I thought that was just kind of part of what you signed up for. (laughs) Witching hour is um, most commonly, well, what is the most common cause of unsettled babies? Wind. Wind. And so wind accumulates. So again, I want people to understand why wind is such a problem. So there are so many reasons before during and after a feed why wind creates problems number one wind takes up space in a stomach so when that baby is full and they stop eating what they don't realize is what they're full of so when your stomach stretches at capacity it sends messages to your brain saying i'm done i can't fit anything more in stop eating when a baby gets those messages, they don't know what they're full of Mm. and the stomach doesn't even know what it's full of, but we know that it's half full of milk and half full of gas. And if you can deflate that stomach and get wind out, all of a sudden that baby's not full anymore and they're going to eat more. So one of the common reasons for frequent feeding is because the baby's only having half their meal. Mm. It's like you sit down for three meals a day. If I cut away half your food and replace it with air, you would, by definition, have to sit down for six meals a day, which is why I so often see babies who feed twice as often as they need to. The second thing is that if the wind doesn't come out the top in the form of a burp, it's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just get absorbed, and so it goes down. And it takes roughly six hours to get from the stomach to where it becomes a fart. Sorry to be gross but we're going to talk about oh dr golly come on if that's the worst thing coming out of your mouth on the podcast i think we're all right i think you need to listen to a few more episodes (laughs) all right so we know how dare you you are disgusting we call them we say flatulence flatus flatus i'll refer to it as flatus farts don't count farts are not burps 
okay? Do not ever count them as burps because a burp is painless when it comes out. A fart on its way through the large colon before it comes out of our bottom, it <laughs> becomes, it, it's crampy. See, our colon was designed to contract on poo, to move it along in a process we call peristalsis. What it was not designed to do was contract on too much gas. Now, gas is normal. It is normal to fart, but parents, especially parents of unsettled babies, will say, oh, my God, my baby doesn't stop farting. They do like adult-sized farts, always farting. And parents say to me they fart all the time during a feed. So farts, as they move through the colon, are crampy pain, and cramping pain is on-off. And remember the Latin meaning of colic? on off that's where you see that baby that has on off pain because they're getting cramps in their abdomen their legs are being pulled up and you can see where the origin of that pain came from now we can see that gas causes problems with inadequate feeding volume it causes problems when it moves through the colon and it also accumulates over the course of the day because it takes hours to get down to become a fart and babies can't fart the way that we can. Farting is actually really complicated. <laughs> so immature. Oh, don't. Stop acting like my husband has some kind of skill. He doesn't. <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, I was going to say he's going to listen to this episode. He never listens to the episode. Uh, he'd probably leave me if he listened to the episodes. But I was like, whenever I'm like, oh, did you have to do that fart? He's like, oh, well, if I had kept it in, I would have got a stomachache. And I think you're proving him right. This sucks. <laughs> but why do, like, why do men f- fart genuinely like if I, I'm allowed to fart I'm a girl but I'm allowed to fart but why do they fart like he farts in his sleep he farts when he's awake you're not burping him adequately <laughs> um why probably we probably eat too much protein half of us yeah he does actually. and eat too fast I reckon he oh. I reckon he gets a lot of air in yeah. when he eats he yeah. shovels his food yeah it's true it's called aerophagia definitely definitely he needs to be burped more he needs to probably eat less protein <laughs> but I mean anyway, I, back, to no, babies, back to babies back to babies back to babies no one's listening like to this about much. how to stop their partners from I don't know so I think much. they would be yeah. I'd be dead keen <laughs> if I had an answer <laughs> So, so much of witching hour is because of the accumulation of gas from four or five feeds during the day where they're not burped adequately and then it just becomes very, very uncomfortable and painful at the end of the day. Having said that, there is a normality to witching hour as well. And we don't fully understand this, but we do know that all mammals, they decompensate a little bit as the sun sets. You know, you can imagine like a wolf or dogs that howl at the moon and it's got to do with tide changes and sun setting moon rising there's just you know some people call it 3 30 itis you know that sort of late <sighs> afternoon discomfort and they just put it Where down you to reach being for tired. the cake yeah that's exactly right so there is this natural phenomenon where we just are a little bit everyone's a little bit unsettled in the late evening but witching hour if it's a problem for parents is it's multifactorial there's probably a few more things contributing to it and so while I won't say that you can completely eradicate it I will say that you don't need to just 
put it off as, like you said, so a, a rite of passage or something. Yeah. You just have to endure it. Our aims is to not make evenings easy because I think once you have children, that's not children. 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 <laughs> childs, children, that's not necessarily possible, but it doesn't have to be like it can feel traumatic. Like I remember yeah. feeling anxious as the clock got to like two, three, and I'd be like if I haven't thought about like dinner for Poppy, if there's no one else here to like help with poppy while I settle like I just remember it feeling this like impending sense of doom mm. as that time of the day came around exactly right and then what does your baby feel anxious anxious and Same I feel thing. like it was way worse with Goldie because she was my second I feel like probably during the day I didn't have as much time to burp her because it was much more like feeding on the go doing what you can because you're running after someone else and then yeah Goldie's witching hours were shocking so you also, if it becomes a really stressful time, you don't, there are no rules in terms of what time you need to do certain things. So mm. it's completely fine to move bath time. If bath time at six o'clock is, is really problematic and stressful for everyone, you can bath them at 10 o'clock at night. You can bath them at 10 o'clock or in the morning. morning. Yeah. Or you can not bath them that day. That's also yeah. completely fine. So there are no rules to even go out the window. There's a lot of flexibility and Trust your gut. If you know that your baby is particularly unsettled in the evening time, don't try to do stuff in the evening mm. time. And if your partner's coming home from work around about that same time, it's probably not good to then further activate an overtired child or, you know, come and be a big hurricane and 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 get everyone excited. That that's not really going to help matters. It might be that the partner comes home and, and takes that baby for a walk. Or something like that. There, there are no rules. So if mm. witching hour is really problematic, just sit down. You can almost write it on a piece of paper to talk about what you do from 4 p.m. onwards and see if you can take half of those jobs and, mm. and do them at different times. That's such a good point. It's so simple, but you just are like, oh, well, it's you normal forget. to eat dinner at this time. It's normal to do bath at this time. It's normal to have a book at this time. It's just a shame that but there's nice also a grenade feel? going off in the but corner. But how nice of the does room. it feel when you just hear someone say there are no rules? You you don't have to bath them, or you don't have to do this, or you don't need to clean your house. Like you you forget that you're not running off someone else's timeline. You've just literally been told that that's the way we should do things. And when you stop and go, I can surrender today. That makes you feel calm. Absolutely. And the pots can be washed in the morning. It's not the end of the world. And the dishwasher can be unpacked at a different time. There are no rules and you can change things just to make life a little bit easier. Again, it comes back to the same point. Focus on you. Mm -hmm. Put yourself first and everyone else is going to benefit. Now we're running out of time a little bit. As we said, we could talk about this for days, but uh, quite a big topic that people wanted to know about because they feel like it's hard to get I guess, reliable information on it, but is allergies and intolerances. What are some signs to look out for, you know, if you do have an unsettled baby that it may be due to an allergy or an intolerance? I love that question. And I want to give a very clear, simple answer. Let's completely separate intolerance from allergy. Okay. They're okay. completely different things. There is a completely different mechanism that happens in the body and they should not be used interchangeably. So first I'm going to talk about the far more common thing of intolerance, okay. and later we'll talk about allergy. So what is an intolerance? Basically, your body is made to be able to break down 
different types of proteins that you feed. And there is usually, think of it like a pair of scissors inside your gut that breaks down whatever you fed it. Now, someone who is lactose intolerant doesn't have enough lactase, which is the pair of scissors that breaks down lactose. So that person can have a little bit of lactose. And most people who are lactose intolerant can have a little bit of yogurt or a little bit of cheese. Mm, mm. But the moment they have milk or the moment they have too much, they get symptoms. And that's because your body's got a little bit of lactase. So you can break down a little bit. But the moment you exhaust those mm, scissors no in your gut, left. then you get symptoms. There's nothing left. So everyone on the planet is lactose intolerant because you can have enough milk to eventually make you spew. Okay, it's just that everyone has a different threshold. Now, when we talk about babies, babies are cow milk protein intolerant. It's not lactose. Lactose intolerance in babies is unbelievably uncommon. It does happen, but it's really, really rare. So what we're talking about in babies, which is more common, is cow milk protein. Now, lactose is a protein in cow's milk, but lactose is in breast milk. In fact, it doesn't matter what you change in a, a breastfeeding mother's diet. There's always going to be lactose in the breast milk. It's in the first part of the breast milk, the formula that comes out first. So babies get lactose. So don't worry too much about lactose intolerance. But cow milk protein intolerance, different proteins that are also found in cow's milk, is much more common in babies and is directly related to how much cow milk protein a breastfeeding mother drinks or how much cow milk protein is in a formula that a baby is fed, mm. okay? Now, what are the symptoms to look out for? Mucus in the poo. Mucus is literally phlegm. It's stringy, green, yellow, snottiness. And if you take a nappy, I'm going to be absolutely visually disgusting here, but if you take a pooey nappy and you fold it and then you open it and you get these long stringy lines that join from one end to the other, that's mucus. A lot of people don't even recognize that their baby has mucus in their poo. And if that is the case, and by the way, the extreme version of mucus in the poo is blood mm. in the poo. If your baby's having that, then start to think about how much cow milk protein you have in your diet if you're breastfeeding, or if the formula being used has cow milk protein in it. So if you're formula feeding a baby, you can use a hydrolyzed formula where that protein is actually broken down before it goes into the baby's gut. And you can have a partially hydrolyzed formula. You can have an extensively hydrolyzed formula, or you can have a formula that's made of rice and has got no camel protein at all. Or like is goat's milk, is the protein different? Yeah, there's so much similarity across different animal milks that right. there's not much pointing going from cow's milk to goat's milk. In fact, there's even an 85% cross-reactivity between cow's milk and soy. So if oh. someone's not having success on cow's milk, I wouldn't recommend shifting to soy as an alternative for mum or an alternative for formula. I would go with a non 
animal and non-soy milk alternative, like oat milk or almond milk or something like that. Not for the baby, for the mother. For, for the mother. <laughs> Let's make that clear. And how long? Oat milk is not a substitute or macadamia for formula. Milk, <laughs> if you're in Byron. But how long is the time frame for you to trial to understand that? So if you're breastfeeding, do you do this for a 48-hour period? Like what is the length of time to understand if that's going to make a change to my baby? Yeah. Beautiful question. Generally, there are no rules on this, but I, I like to tell parents that it's going to take a couple of days to wash out of your system as a breastfeeding mother, and then a couple of days to wash out of your baby's system. So I would give any trial about four or five days to see if it's having an effect. The beautiful thing is that not only will you see an improvement in the unsettled behavior, you'll see the evidence in the nappies and you see it quite quickly, like within a week. Now, the amount of restriction that you make on a breastfeeding mother's diet is not extreme so remember we're not talking allergies so reduce your dairy but don't read labels you can eat a croissant that's got a made with butter and you Mm. can have a sandwich you can have a piece of chocolate but don't read labels and you know may contain traces of milk we're we're not that sensitive remember your baby has some scissors in the gut it just doesn't have a lot and the other thing is that they're always maturing they're always getting more So a baby at three weeks who's cow milk protein intolerant may not be by the time they're six weeks. They've grown some more scissors. I tell parents as a general rule, breastfeeding mums, on the first of every month, have a little bit more milk. See what happens. Don't have a big load of dairy, but have a little bit more each day and see if your baby's grown out of that intolerance because you don't have to be restricting your diet for the entire duration of breastfeeding unless that baby's a particularly sensitive case. And the vast majority will be grown out of this within three or four weeks. Are there any other intolerances that are common? We had one lady write in and she's like, I just don't know what to do next. I feel like I'm left with nothing left to eat as a breastfeeding mother. What, what are other things that commonly get cut out? So the absolute top of the list is cow's milk. The next most common is soy. And mm. again, I'm talking soy milk. I'm not talking like a little bit of soy sauce or bread that contains soy. Don't be pedantic about ingredients. And then much further down that list, we have other things that can be causes of of inflammation in the baby's gut and intolerances and and mucus. And they are rice, egg, gluten, and corn. So a lot of mums are, are cutting everything out all at once. Probably don't need to because milk is just so much more common. But if you're cutting that out and you're still seeing a huge amount of mucus, then I would take away egg, which is a little bit easier to take away. Then I would take away corn, which is not that difficult to remove, Mm. and then rice, and then very at the very end, gluten. And there are some babies who have mucus in almost every nappy, but they're gaining good weight, they're happy, they're settled, they are otherwise well, and I'm not terribly bothered by we don't have to aim for zero mucus necessarily if it's a trade-off between that mother's quality of life yeah and a little bit of mucus I choose the mum because you're telling me that list and I'm like oh gosh as like a convenience breastfeeding or any newborn Mm. mum I'm like what you're not going to be whiffing yourself up some Greek salad yeah yeah correct there's not a lot left of, of a pregnancy where you've been so limited in what you can eat to then limit mums further, it's it's hard. And then some mums will shift to formula, to one of those non-animal protein or or hydrolyzed formulas simply because they can't keep, like I said, pouring from an empty cup. They just can't keep making milk because they're so 
deprive themselves. So that's intolerance in a nutshell, and they grow out of it. That's the most important thing to know. And it's not very, very uh, sensitive. So it's dose dependent. So the more you have as a breastfeeding mother, the more baby gets. When we talk about allergy, it's a completely different thing. Allergens don't go through breast milk. So the more peanut butter you eat oh. as a breastfeeding mother, it's not going to help sensitize your baby. Allergens go straight through the baby. And we have very strong evidence that shows us that there is this window between four and six months that if you expose babies to more and more allergens from four to six months, you decrease their long-term risk of being allergic to those things. So holding off on exposing your babies to things for fear of allergies is actually going to make them more likely to have an allergy. So I like to start solids when a baby is ready. It most commonly happens around the four-month mark, which is earlier than a lot of people assume and earlier than a lot of people do, which is what drives a lot of four-month sleep regression nonsense. Okay, these are babies who are hungry, who need to start solids and four month sleep regression just does not happen on my watch. So one of the benefits of starting solids at this age is that you get the opportunity to get allergens in. Now, even if you decide not to start solids at four months, because remember, there are no rules and I'm not forcing this upon parents. I'm just saying respond to your baby. But if you want to delay solids, I beg you, I urge you, don't delay allergens. So you can expose a baby to peanuts without necessarily giving them solids. They don't mm. have to swallow it. They just have to it have it It doesn't have to be mouth. a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> no, exactly. You, know, you, can, you can make some scrambled egg, put it on their tongue, let them sort of yeah. play with it for a second, take it off, and they're fully exposed to egg. So that's absolutely fine. And just to I'm confirm, so confused though because I've heard so much about if you start food too early, it then leads to like further discomfort and more sleep issues. If you start food too early, then you're making a mistake. If you start food too late, you're making a mistake. So how do you possibly, oh, how do you know? How do you know? And the answer oh. is always your baby's telling you. Your baby yeah. will tell you, remember, they're the good communicators. We're the ones with the problem. So, and just to be clear, they, they've got to be sitting up, like they've got to be able to be sitting, no? No, no. Some babies won't sit until six, seven, eight, nine months, and that should not stop you from starting solids. You don't have to have trunk control to start solids. You need head control. A baby can be fed solids nestled in your arms or, or sitting up in a strapped into a stroller. A baby can be fed solids in a bouncer. Or in one of those chairs that that hold the legs tightly yep. and provide the trunk control and they bring all the head control. You don't have to be sitting independently. If you wait that long, like I said, some babies will, won't be sitting independently and for a long period of time as well until well into eight or nine months. And that baby's going to be very unsettled. You make a good point because my girlfriend's um, six-month-old, she's just started crawling. However, she's not sitting up. But if she's using that much energy by crawling, then I assume that she's going to need some more. Yeah. So look at your baby. So if your baby at four months of age is starting to wake a little bit earlier in the morning, you know, the 7 o'clock becomes a 5.30 and they're starting to get a bit unsettled overnight, if your baby is spitting up more 
because they're trying to get more calories in, but their stomachs can only expand so far. If your baby is watching you intently while you eat, if your baby is grabbing everything within reach and bringing it to the midline and bringing it to their mouth and chewing on their hands and salivating more, those are the signs they're telling you loud and clear. I'm not going through a leap. I'm not going through a regression. I'm just bloody hungry. Wow. This is going to cause backlash. I can see it. (laughs) People are going to be like, what do you mean? (laughs) No, but that is so interesting. The other question that we had, because we are running out of time, was do you have any tips for unsettled babies in cars? Yes, prevent it as much as possible. So again, look at those standard causes of unsettledness. And then when it does come to cars, a lot of babies are unsettled because it's very disconcerting to get into a fast-moving vehicle and not be able to see where you're going. So I, for one, I hate getting on a train and facing backwards. Oh, same. I hate it. You can't see what's coming. You know, you look to the side and you just see this world passing you by quickly. You don't know when you're going to speed up, slow down. So do we um, just drive with them in, in there on, <laughs> on the front seat? Yeah, right. <laughs> Great advice. That Make them hold the ball. phone for the sat-nav so they know where they're going. Um, no, the, the answer is, is to put a really big mirror, not one of those tiny ones, a really big mirror so the baby can see forward through the reflection. The baby can see you as well. And turning that car seat around as early as is safe and advised to do so, so that they can be forward facing. Obviously, you you need to be safe safety first, but when that baby's forward facing, they're going to be much happier. And if you've got a baby who wants to be forward facing, don't just move the car seat, move the stroller as well to be forward facing, Mm. the bassinet attachment as well. And when you're carrying them in a carrier, make them face outwards. Yeah. And I actually, this might need to come with a disclaimer and a future apology, but I was doing a poll on Instagram the other day about the most annoying kids songs. Baby Shark wasn't a part of it because that was obviously going to win. It was quite divisive. A lot of people wrote in this song by Imogen Heap. I think it's called The Baby Song. And some people hate it, but the vast majority of people were like, do not knock this song. It is magic. Apparently, if you put it on in the car, apparently it has been scientifically proven. I have not looked into the data, so do not do not like hold me to that. I haven't actually looked into what kind of studies have been done into a song, but apparently the way it's sung and like the frequency that it's sung at, all these people were like, it makes my child go from losing their utter shit to silent and happy as soon as it gets turned on. Wow! But then. In a matter of six months, you absolutely hate the song, but your child's happy. So yeah. pick, pick your, pick your battles. battles. Yeah, I was always blaring Eminem as loud as possible. I've that, heard that's yeah. had the same kind of scientific research. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Stan is on the same frequency same as this baby song. <laughs> My kids know all the lyrics to all the Eminem songs now at the ages of five, seven, and nine, and they're all they're in the back of the car. I'm kind of proud. <laughs> Yeah, you should be proud. You're like, this is just like a private song we rap. <laughs> like maybe don't rap this at school. No, exactly. Rap it at right. school. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and helping us Once again. chat about unsettled babies. As we said at the start, I reckon we could chat forever about it because it is a 
like I guess a multi-layered issue, but, you know, thank you for giving us some really simple tips and tricks and things to think about. It's my absolute pleasure. And if there's one thing, one, I know we talked about a lot of things, but if there's one take-home message that I just want your audience to lead with, it's that you're doing so much better than you realise. You're doing so much better than you give yourself credit for. And there's often just small little tweaks here and there that we can make that make a huge difference to the whole family. But don't be so hard on yourself and don't buy into all of the noise that's out there because the answer is within you. Hear, 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 hear. Love you, Dr. Golly. Thank you, lady. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.